welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Two recent rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court could have a major impact on Native college enrollment. One decision does away with prioritizing racial diversity goals when recruiting students. Experts say that will most certainly reduce college participation by a population that already has the lowest education attainment compared to other groups. We'll also look into how the ruling against the Biden administration's college loan forgiveness plan affects Native students. That's all coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Alaska Natives are among the hardest hit by the state's housing shortage. As KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports, rural areas struggle the most. A new housing trust called Housing Alaskans, a public and private partnership, also known as HAP, hopes to change this. But Preston Simmons, who chairs the board, says it won't be easy. It was expensive to build up here before but it's really expensive now. In the last 40 to 50 years, rural communities haven't seen much new housing. Simmons says that's due in large part to building costs, which can be several times higher than in urban areas. Housing shortages are something Faith Tulick knows all too well. A few years ago, she left Hooper Bay, a remote community on the Bering Sea coast, for more schooling. But when she finished her studies, she decided against moving her family back home. There'd be no way we could get our own place out there. Tulik says the best option was to move in with her mother and the rest of her extended family, a household of 10 people packed into a small home. Not unusual for Hooper Bay. So Tulik signed up for a rural cap self-help building project in South Central Alaska, in which her family and eight others worked together to build nine homes with a lot of the costs covered in exchange for their labor. Tulik says she wishes Hooper Bay could have a similar program. And with Hap in the mix, that just might be possible someday. Alaskans have a lot of great ideas and work really hard. Simmons says Hap hopes to partner with tribes and other organizations to put those ideas to work and support projects like one it funded in Sitka this year, the Hikasani Project, which means little houses in the Tlingit language. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. When conditions worsened at their school, the Shoshone Paiute tribes mounted a vigorous lobbying campaign at the Nevada legislature. KUNR's Maria Palma reports. When the legislative session opened this year, the tribes called for funding to replace Owahi Combined School, which serves more than 300 students living on the Duck Valley Indian Reservation. They highlighted problems like a bat infestation and an old heating system. For four months, tribal chairman Brian Mason encouraged his community to raise their voices and speak out about the bad condition of their school. And it worked. On June 13th, Nevada's governor signed a bill that earmarks $64.5 million to replace the Owahi Combined School. Sean Davis, a sophomore at Owahi Combined School, traveled six hours to be present at the ceremonial signing in Carson City. I'd imagine it bigger and better than our new, our current one right now. And just, just a whole better place than what we got now. Diana Conoyer heads the National Indian Education Association. She says this is an example of tribal empowerment. 
Oahi tribal leader advocated with the state. Even though a tribal school is on a reservation, it is still a school with students that live within that specified state. Federal and state funding as well as philanthropy are options that tribes can use to improve their schools, she says. There needs to be a different way of approaching tribal-state partnership. Mason says it is a big win for the tribe, its students, and future generations. With so many things challenging them on the reservation, everything is stacked against them. This is going to help. Mason says the tribes already have set aside 80 acres for a new school. He expects it will take about two years to be built. I'm Maria Palma. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Nobody likes a crowded highway. A crowded crib is even worse. For a safe night's sleep, use a fitted sheet only and be sure there are no toys, blankets, or pillows around your baby. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The U.S. Supreme Court made two major decisions affecting higher education. The first puts an end to affirmative action, with a solid majority of the court saying race cannot be used as a factor for higher education admissions. The second is a ruling against the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan. Under certain conditions, the plan would have wiped out thousands of dollars of debt for student borrowers. Today on our show, we'll talk with experts on how these decisions will affect prospective Native students, and we welcome you to the conversation. As a Native person, do you feel you've benefited from affirmative action policies? Are you carrying student loans and hoping for student debt relief? Do you agree with these recent rulings? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on our social media pages like Facebook or Instagram. Joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan now is Matthew Fletcher. He is a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School and author of the Turtle Talk blog. He's a member of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. He's been on the show before. Matthew, welcome back to NAC. Thank you so much, Sean. It's good to be here. Also joining us today from the campus of Emory University in Atlanta, although she works out of Bernalillo, New Mexico, we have Carmen Lopez. She's also been a guest on NAC before. She's the executive director of College Horizons and Graduate Horizons, and she is Navajo. Carmen, welcome back. Hi, glad to be with you. Thank you. And speaking with us from Washington, D.C., is Julia Wakeford. She is the policy director for the National Indian Education Association. She is Muskogee and Yuchi. Julia, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for inviting me. Matthew, I'd like to begin with you today. And 
I think it's ironic here, just when Indian country was celebrating some big wins, two new Supreme Court rulings have kind of put a little bit of a damper on that party. Are you taking this all in stride or are you feeling a little gut punched right now? Always feeling a little gut punch, but totally not surprised. I mean, this is one of the reasons these particular justices were put on the court was for political reasons to do things like this, to eradicate affirmative action and uh, just a just one in a long line of cases uh, outside of the Indian law realm, like in abortion and voting rights, where Supreme Court is sort of leading the country in terms of what our national policy should be. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a, a little bit about the ruling itself. Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, his opinion states that the color of a person's skin is irrelevant to that individual's equal status as a citizen of this nation. Now, to me, that sounds fairly reasonable. Is he wrong at all in a legal sense? Well, I mean, you say it, that the conservatives that uh, sort of have led the charge to eradicate affirmative action always hide behind the notion of colorblindness. Um, sometimes they even cite Martin Luther King Jr. for the proposition that um, even the great, a great leader like him would have said that um, you know equal protection of the laws in the 14th Amendment means that no consider of ra- consideration of race can ever be taken. Um, you know, it's really disingenuous to say that, but effectively that is the law, according to the United States Supreme Court, that the 14th Amendment prohibits government actors from taking consideration of race. Uh, taking race into consideration at all, even if it's to uh, remedy past or current harms, even if it's designed to do so in a neutral way. Um, these are uh, pretty radical statements and, uh, you know, char- you know, characterized as sort of, you know, race neutral, um, you know, race neutral statements. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's gaslighting. It's like they're playing a game with us to see if we'll go crazy. And I'm on my way. I just want you to know. Okay. Well, the legal arguments, Matthew, uh, opposing the decision seem to focus on the practical benefits of affirmative action. So how do you see this affecting minority educational attainment in the future? Well, um, you know, we have uh, the history of several states in the last couple of decades, uh, California in the 90s, Michigan in the 2000s, Washington in the 90s, a few other states have effectively, uh, through state uh, constitutional amendments have uh, you know, basically banned affirmative action. So we kind of know what, what to expect in those states. Um, for the, Number one, the, the, the schools that, are, that tend to be most impacted are the most um, selective schools. Um, so that's why Harvard and North Carolina were targeted here, where Mich- University of Michigan was targeted in 2000. U- University of Texas has been targeted. Um, the goal here, of course, is that to keep uh, people of color out of elite public you know, public and private universities and other institutions. Okay. Um, but those institutions tend to be the ones that have the most interest in having a diverse uh, school, uh, having a diverse uh, student body, and are sort of in the forefront of taking effort to, um, to, to limit the impact of these bans on affirmative action. Schools like Berkeley and UCLA, Michigan, that sort of thing. Well, one thing I find also ironic about this whole situation is that 
one part of this stems from a class action lawsuit lawsuit from students at Harvard, specifically Asian American students who felt they were being discriminated against unfairly because they weren't being admitted into that school the numbers that they felt was appropriate based strictly on their academic merit. And what's your thought on that? And, and that a driving force here is another group of minority people, Asian Americans in this case. Well, I mean, it's a deeply brilliant and cynical strategy as a wedge issue to try to break apart um, sort of a pretty pretty much unified front of people of color. Um, and it's really disappointing that that, that is the case. Um, but, you know, there's uh, definitely white uh, candidates, uh, plaintiffs in th these cases as well. This is definitely driven by um, an effort to... Uh, you know, basically ensure very limited number of people of color are going to be in colleges and universities and high-ranked schools. So, um, you know, it's disappointing that uh, that we this sort of this focus, especially in the Harvard case, is on Asian American students. But keep in mind, um, you, you use the word merit, and the other side uses the word merit as an indicator that really the only thing that schools should be taking into account are, you know, high school GPAs and test scores. Those are not really indicators of merit. They're often indicators of socioeconomic um, power. You know, you know, like for example, I, I have the benefit of having some amount of wealth, and so my kids will be going to a good school. They'll have access to outside resources, and I can get them tutoring, and have, they can take classes on how to best, you know, take standardized tests. They're going to benefit from all that, and that's really what a lot of these tests and uh, you know that these things that we consider as proxies for merit really do is show that who's got the best capacity to buy effectively a good test score. And there's more, more, many more things to take into consideration. I mean, we talk about, you have to talk about geographic diversity, you have to talk about um, socioeconomic diversity. Um, and, you know, GPA and LSAT score is, or not LSAT, but standardized test scores and GPAs are just a small, relatively small indicator of that. And um, if you just look at that, those test scores, you're not really going to see a full picture of what, uh, you know, what a person is. And it's unfortunate that, you know, the people who are sort of pulling the strings on this litigation used Asian American persons as effectively a, sort of a shill, a sham, mm -hmm. uh, to try to just disseminate them down into, you know, a couple of numbers. And it's really kind of shameful. Well, there was also... Um... Involved with this ruling, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, who wrote for the court's conservative majority, said nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life, so long as that discussion is concretely tied to a quality of character or unique ability that the particular applicant can contribute to the university. So this has a lot of people thinking about student essays and things like that. So I just want to ask, I mean, can't a native kid now just write a letter to a college admissions board and say, look, I'm Native American. I have a highly unique culture, heritage, and life experience that will add value to your student body. Let me come to your school. I'm so glad you pointed out that language. It's, it's patently apparent that that language comes from uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissent or in response to Justice Sotomayor's dissent. Um, you know, what, what the plaintiffs in this case would like is to distill everyone down to these numbers, but, you know, we, we have lives. And part of the thing that is important in getting into college is showing that you are a unique individual with interesting strengths and weaknesses, that the challenges you face. 
And what Sotomayor pointed out in dissent to the majority, which sort of used this language to respond to that, was, well, you're basically saying that people of color can't exercise their First Amendment free speech rights to talk about themselves if they use the word race or proxies for race. And uh, to the, the majority's very, very minimal credit, uh, they actually said, well, yeah, okay, so we'll allow people to continue to talk about their backgrounds, their histories, their personalities, their persons. Um, but, you know, keep in mind that that's very helpful for moving forward in sort of managing, you know, the, the wreckage of this case. But it doesn't prohibit in a future case somebody coming along and saying, well, we can't take consideration of, um, you know, personal histories into consideration anymore either. Um, ironically, there is Harvard was immediately sued for legacy admits, meaning people who have who are the descendants of people who went to Harvard before. And we usually consider legacy admits to be people who are white and privileged and their, you know, their fam family members have gone to the university before. And um, so that's the kind of thing you can talk about in your admissions essay. And it helps you if you're a legacy, but it's going to also, um, if you get rid of legacy admits and you couple that with a language from the, you know, that the language that the, the bad guys sort of want in this case, um, you can really do a lot of damage and gut the ability of, uh, brown persons, uh, people with um, less money and privilege to, to, to make a case to the university. And, um, you know, I guess maybe the one bright spot to all of these affirmative action cases in the last half century or so is that universities have take, begun to take into consideration of the whole person rather than who that person, you know, where those parents, you know, play their golf or what school their parents went to and how much money their parents have. Always a pleasure to listen to Matthew Fletcher provide legal insight here on Native America Calling. Folks, we have to take a short break, but we'll be right back. There's a strong push to free an orca captive at a Florida marine amusement park. The efforts by Pacific Northwest tribes and animal rights groups got a boost when the facility agreed to release the orca known as Tokatai. We'll hear more about this and the importance tribes place on orcas on the next Native America Calling. Indian Healthcare Provider Information visit healthcare.gov slash covered Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our conversation around the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action and student loan forgiveness. If you have a comment or question you'd like to add to our conversation, give us a call. You know the number, 1-800-996-2848. And a reminder, you can listen back to today's show and past shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all those other major podcast platforms that are out there. I'd like to introduce a fourth guest on our show now. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is the Undersecretary for the U.S. Department of Education, James Kowal. James, welcome to our show. 
Sean, thanks for having me. Absolutely, James. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And I want to get your insights right off the bat here. What do you see as some of the ripple effects of these new rulings here? Well, you know, I think it was a difficult um, week uh, for the news that the um, efforts that so many people are making across the country to uh, build a system of higher education that promotes upward mobility um, and promotes equity you know, suffered two body blows next week. And um, uh, there's no question there was a setback. And I think what's important um, for all of us is to remember that uh, the fight goes on, um, that there's a lot of work left for us to do, and we need to approach that work with, uh, with even greater urgency. And James, in preparation for this ruling that uh, essentially ends affirmative action, what did the U.S. Department of Education do to prepare? Well, you know, we did um, spend some time looking at um, different ways um, we thought this decision could come out. And, uh, you know, we know that there are uh, a lot of things that colleges and universities are doing to help students from all backgrounds succeed, to promote racial equity, uh, to benefit uh, from uh, diversity in their teaching and learning. And uh, there's a lot that colleges and universities can still do. So, Um, The secretary is going to be gathering college leaders from across the country uh, here in Washington on July 26th, and we're going to talk very specifically about what those things are uh, and how we can move forward as a country. Well, I know at some schools they're placing a focus more on low-income students as opposed to students of color. Do you see that as a policy going forward that will have a lot of traction? That is certainly one thing to look at, and the president talked a little bit about that on Friday, um, that colleges and universities can um, consider um, the adversity um, that individuals have overcome, including um, racial discrimination. And that was something acknowledged by the Supreme Court majority as well. So uh, that's something some colleges are already doing and having some success with, and that's something I anticipate uh, more colleges being interested in. Now, as Matthew Fletcher shared earlier, in states where affirmative action policies have already ended, there have been reports of decreases in in diversity. And uh, what do you see as some other ways in which colleges and universities can increase those diversity numbers? Well, there's a lot that colleges can do to um, help more students from all backgrounds prepare um, and be ready for college-level material. Um, to recruit students from all backgrounds and give them a fair shot, um, and then to help those students succeed. Um, and so there's no end um, to uh, things that will make a productive contribution here. And I think what we have to keep in mind is, you know, there's no silver bullet. There's no um, one thing we can do um, to get back to where we were. Um, we have a lot of work to do. Um, so we have to roll up our sleeves and move forward across the board uh, and be really aggressive about this. James, if you look at affirmative action policies, they date back well over half a century. And the goal has always been to provide a more even playing field to minorities. And yet opponents will often say, look, you know, affirmative action, it was designed as a temporary model to get minorities to this point where they are on an equal playing field and they can compete essentially. And uh, a lot of people say, well, well, look, how much longer can these programs go on? It's been over 50 years. 
another 50 years? I mean, I mean, at what point will minority people be able to stand on their own two feet? That's always the argument that's used against these types of policies. Do you see any merit with, I mean, here we are 50 years in, five decades. This is this states back before I was even born. I mean, when will we reach a point if, if minority, if affirmative action is ever able to be reinstituted or the, this ruling doesn't fly, uh, do you ever see an end to affirmative action? Will we reach a point in this country where we just won't need that policy? Well, what I think is pretty clear is um, that we continue to have um, systemic racial discrimination in our country, and we do not yet have uh, equal opportunity for everybody. Um, uh, I think it's hard to debate that point. And for our colleges and universities, um, you know, play a really central role in giving young people an opportunity to have a better life, to achieve economic security. And we so badly need them to be um, institutions that work toward greater equity instead of working against it. And so that's the, you know, that's the challenge we face in the country right now. And we have um, quite a bit of work to do uh, to live up to the ideals of higher education. James, when you look at Native American students as compared to other minorities, uh, Hispanics, Blacks, what do you see as the unique needs that are, that are facing Native American students? And how specifically will these two recent rulings really hinder those efforts? Well, Native students face, um, you know, a lot of challenges, as do other students of color. And um, obviously, they're often in um, rural uh, communities. Um, they often come from low-income backgrounds, and so you see, uh, uh, you know, challenges compounding each other um, for these students. Um, you know, tribal colleges are uh, essential institutions for our country, um, often underfunded, and um, at other institutions, um, often there are relatively small numbers of, of Native students, and their their particular needs are not well understood. So it's important for us to you know, to pay attention to uh, the special uh, the special responsibility we have toward Native students. Well, James, I, I want to thank you again for joining us. I know your time is limited and, and you worked around your schedule to be a guest here on Native America Calling Again. So again, really appreciate you taking that time. Uh, James Kowal, Undersecretary for the U.S. Department of Education, speaking with us live from Washington, D.C., I'd like to now go to our third guest on the show, Carmen Lopez, who, again, is the executive director of College Horizons and Graduate Horizons. And Carmen, I'd like to switch gears a little bit now and talk specifically about this student loan forgiveness plan that was struck down by the Supreme Court last month. What do you see the impact there on Native students? Hi, Sean. Yeah, the you know, it, it's a big blow to uh, Indigenous students, uh, families, and especially one of the important things when I was previously on your show, we have a lot of adult learners who have taken loans out that are, you know, between the ages of, uh, you know, 40 to 60 years old who are holding on to loans that are between five and 20,000. So it, it's not just the young students, but actually some of our, our seniors, uh, senior elders in our community still carrying student debt. Um, so it's, uh, you know, um, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, I know the 
Biden administration is looking to the Higher Education Act of 1965 to see if they can bring relief through uh, that act as an alternative. Um, and just the recent information that they've been able to provide is that uh, students would um, not be at default for a year. Repayment begins in October. Um, and then there's a possibility for those that just cannot make payments uh, who haven't recovered economically from the pandemic um, might have a way if it leads to bankruptcy that those loans might be relieved. Uh, that's still to, to come if they're able to do that. But um, it, it's significant for uh, Native communities, especially in states where financial aid is um, not need-based but is merit-based, and so you have students from states with high need, but they're not getting the full aid to cover the gap to pay for higher education. And Carmen, the Native students that you work with, the college students, are, are they pretty dependent on student loans to pay for tuition? We have a mix. So of um, one of the uh, important parts of the college partnerships that we do have of the type of colleges that come to uh, College Horizons, the majority of them can meet full demonstrated need. So that's, that's, that's what we're looking for when we're trying to find financial fit for students uh, in college is what colleges can provide that student with um, that financial aid so they're not gapped. But about, you know, 60% of our students are attending colleges um, that, that have a mix of that, that can't meet that full demonstrated need. So there are loans that are packaged into um, their their financial aid. And that's where, you know, we help them to understand when you take out educational loans, subsidized loans, unsubsidized loans, parent plus loans, using the colleges and universities to take out loans versus commercial uh, loans. So there's important financial literacy that needs to take place should a student need to take on um, debt. And then to not use the credit card, don't use credit cards <laughs> in this time of high interest rate. Okay. Another interesting uh, point to consider is that the proposed plan, it offered up to $10,000 of federal student loan debt relief uh, and up to $20,000 of relief for students who received Pell Grants. So between ten dollars and $20,000 of potential debt relief. However, the average undergrad student in the United States uh, that takes out student loans owes about $33,000 when they graduate from, from school. So this student loan forgiveness plan, for most students who are carrying student loan debts, it's not going to cover that full amount. But specifically with the students that you work with, Carmen, how how big an impact is between ten and thirty? Or excuse me, between ten and twenty thousand dollars of federal student debt relief? How big a difference is that going to make on those balance sheets for their student loans? It's significant, especially when you're you're graduating from college and you're you're looking to potentially work within the community uh, locally. So you're not gonna have, the, the earnings that you might have might not be at a certain level when you're just entry level graduating from college to be able to make $200, $300 monthly payments in your student loans. So it's, it's always that financial building for a young professional uh, coming out of college to, you know, find a good job, relocate to wherever they have to, uh, to pay, you know, for a car insurance, health insurance. 
So, right, it's at the time where you're vulnerable as a young professional to get started. And then on top of it, you've already got this um, heavy bill that you've got to make payments on. So, you know, when we look at both spectrums of young uh, professionals, um, you know, that that $200, $300 payment um, is significant. And it's, again, that wealth building for um, Indigenous communities that we don't typically have, that this is part of what that higher ed degree is supposed to be able to do is to move us into that next um, level to, to help out, you know, our families and our communities. Um, so, so I think it is, it, it, it has an impact and it influences the jobs that they're going to take, whether that maybe pulls them away from communities to take higher paying jobs, um, or it's just, again, maybe limiting their ability to finance loans for other things like, like a car or, you know, down the road and mortgages, um, mortgage payments and things. Well, uh, I really agree with you. You know, those early formative years coming out of school uh, can really make or break a person financially. And if they get off to the wrong foot, uh, they can be saddled for many, many years to come. I want to go back to Matthew Fletcher now. And Matthew, can you explain to us what was the legal argument for the Supreme Court's ruling on the student loan forgiveness plan? Well, there's a federal statute that governs um, uh, that governs, you know, student loans and that sort of thing. And it basically had some limiting language in it that uh, Congress put in there to try to, to basically prevent a president from doing exactly what Joe Biden was trying to do. Um, but they, this is, you know, part of the Supreme Court's agenda and limiting the powers of the presidency and basically the federal government whenever there's a Democratic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> official in place. So. Um, they were going to use this as a vehicle to expand that power. Well, I know it was tied into to the COVID emergency policies, right, with regard to like a, an executive decision during a time of crisis or emergency. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, I confess that I haven't read the case in much detail, so you probably have to go back and. <laughs> ask okay. Okay. Alrighty, Carmen, is that accurate? Uh, it, had to do with uh, an executive decision through an emergency mandate, COVID era? That's what I, right, that's what I understand is just, okay. um, yeah, that they exceeded their authority that Congress can make uh, the decision. And that's why the Higher Ed Act is supposed to be the tool, perhaps a better vehicle by which um, Congress has the authority to provide that type of um, type of relief. So we'll we'll see if the Higher Ed Act uh, holds up for them to, to do that. Um, and Sean, I, I wanted to make one comment, if I can go back to the affirmative action case, um, because this was significant for us at College Horizons as an access organization working with prospective students to uh, come into college. And uh, just quickly, I, What's important in the message, because it came down on the last day of our program at the University of Redlands, um, you know, it's a day of community and celebration, and we're hit first thing in the morning with this ruling and helping our students to understand what this means. And, you know, we've navigated through the pandemic, the college admission process for our families during these uncertain times. And now here we're in another uncertain time uh, with respect to affirmative action. And I think that the message that we're trying to get out that's so important is for students to understand that um, as as political sovereign nations, we, we're not um, 
to be described as a race and ethnicity within the admission process. And this is going to be really significant for students and families, tribal ed departments, to, to push on and advocate for and help our colleges and universities to understand that it's the tribal citizenship, not race and ethnicity, that is our students' identification. So they, they can still be allowed to self-identify as American Indian and Alaska Native on the college application process. Now, the colleges might be removing certain demographic questions, but for sure, uh, Indigenous students need to be saying, this is who I am. I have a right to say who I am based upon my tribal um, nation status. And, um, and this is going to be part of the education. The second important thing is on the essay part, the narrative sections, students can tell their story. Um, at College Horizons, we, this is what we say, we're blessed to come from traditions of storytellers. And the application process is essentially a storytelling process. So again, we introduce ourselves a certain way to find our relations. It's a protocol. It's been taught to us you know, since um, our creation stories. So students should not okay. be denied that ability. All right, Carmen, great points to make, especially for any students who are listening to the show today. Short break, and we'll be right back. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our conversation around affirmative action. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Let's go to the phones right now where we have Chanupa, who is listening on Keeley up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, thank you for having me again, Sean. This question I'm going to give to Matthew when it comes to affirmative action, because I heard him say something on the show before the helicopter went by and then I got cut off. But one of the things that He's going to agree with that states that have a high margin of our people, indigenous and others of color, they're, they're guided to do a requirement to give in a report to higher education. And I think it's every, every maybe three to four years, maybe lesser. But there is an action that they're neglecting when kids, like yesterday, I protected a bunch of them because they had a protest here in South Dakota to, you know, put a damper on racism. So I know Matthew's going to agree with this because to achieve gold is like what Bush and them did back in the past when they said, no child left behind act, okay? Mm -hmm. So I led those children into Washington, D.C., because the symbolic retroid to that was no, no child left without a dime. So higher education plays to that. When you eliminate, you know, that type of discrepancy towards people, you're also saying education is not good enough for children that are achieving that higher goal. And that's my question I wanted to give Matthew. Thank you for having me, Sean. 
You bet, Chanupa. Thank you for, for that question. And Matthew, do you, do you feel okay fielding this one from Chanupa? You mentioned states with high Native American populations uh, being required to report to state higher education offices and just that role with affirmative action. What's your thought there? Yeah, you know, when I think about uh, Indian people and affirmative action and higher education and you know, just regular education, I always have to start with the acknowledgement of the federal tribal relationship and the trust responsibility or what I, what I call the duty of protection. I mean, we, you know, our, our leaders uh, nationally through the treaty negotiations almost always asked and insisted on um, some sort of educational requirement as part of the trust responsibility. And so the United States has that obligation and so do state governments that accept federal money or um, choose to, you know, move forward with something like the Michigan Indian Tuition Waiver. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, those things are critically important and really the fundamental goals of what uh, the United States and the state should be doing in terms of higher education to American Indians is fulfilling that duty of protection. And uh, just as a practical matter, you know, they're the Native students who perform well um, and want to move forward with higher education, um, they they, they have no trouble really getting into colleges. And uh, they need assistance, and College Horizons is there to help people navigate the bureaucratic uh, minefield that is, you know, that kind of is the admissions process. But, um, you know, the, that kind of work that's being done in South Dakota, I, I applaud, absolutely agree. And uh, I don't see Native people doing well standing uh, ahead of anybody else uh, in terms of getting special benefits. That's that's not the issue, and we have a special relationship with the United States that obligates the United States to continue to um, assist Indian people in getting educated. Matthew, another concern with regard to this affirmative action ruling is what could be future implications for other policies that impact Native people, such as Indian preference for federal hiring or 8A contracting. A lot of Native folks depend on those policies. Yeah, that's, you know, those, those are those are serious concerns. Um, but I would say, you know, just to shave off some of the difficult questions, um, you know, Indian tribes have a special relationship. And so, so long as the, you know, these programs um, that ostensibly create preferences are re rationally related to the fulfillment of the trust responsibility, they're totally constitutional. And um, this extends on to all sorts of different things that are unique to federal Indian law, like the Indian country criminal jurisdiction, right? It applies to, quote, Indians. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that there's a lot of an enormous amount of constitutional law and precedent history that supports the continuation of those other programs. That doesn't mean um, people aren't looking for a vehicle to try to attack them. They will continue to do that. And um, that makes it, you know, that we have to be constantly vigilant in that way. Well, let's bring our fourth guest in the conversation now, Julia Wakeford, who is Policy Director for the National Indian Education Association. And Julia, you doing okay? I appreciate your patience. Yeah, that's fine. Hi, Sean. Hi, Julia. I, I want to have you chime in now. What do you see as the most significant consequences of this recent ruling on affirmative action? Well, I think one of the big conversations that is going to come out of this, and I think Carmen was right on the nose, is whether or not we can counteract some of the narratives that are going to come out here. Um, we know that there will be some consequences in certain colleges, depending upon how seriously they take this and what their other diversity and equity initiatives look like 
and how serious they are about ensuring diversity on their campuses. But it also is going to be about some of those partnerships that already exist in colleges along with various tribes across the country. I think one of the conversations that we should really push out there is to look towards California. Um, California, which has long had um, standing against affirmative action, but they also have agreements with tribes and tribal citizens um, when they enter the UC system to be able to have tuition waived and other programs specifically for Native students upon that recognition that they are citizens of sovereign nations. And so that is the sort of narrative I think that we should be pushing out towards admissions offices across the country, towards college campuses when they're wondering what they can do to ensure that that diversity remains and to ensure that that remains especially for our Native students. Now, Julia, how worried are you that we're going to see serious, serious drops of, of Native American students uh, in admissions, specifically, like Matthew mentioned earlier, with some of these more selective schools, which, again, seem to be where these issues could have the biggest impact? You know, I think it's definitely a concern that we might see some drop in some of these places. But on the other hand, you have programs like College Horizons, um, who already have existing relationships with, e with each of these selective universities. I myself am an alum of College Horizons, but also of Swarthmore College, a liberal arts college on the East Coast. And a number of these universities and colleges have come out saying that they stand by and will do whatever they can within the letter of the law to make sure that there remains diversity on their campuses. So that's where protecting some of these agreements, protecting fly-in programs for your students to make sure that high school students who are high achieving know and feel comfortable that they can continue to apply and that their dreams can remain um, within reach for them. And I think that's going to be the, one of the bigger pieces here. Now, Julie, a lot of our conversation today has been framed around students and what can students do, what should students do. But I know one of your concerns also is that some of these colleges just won't look towards Indian country for students. They won't make active efforts to recruit Native students. Mm -hmm. What do you see there going forward? So I think that's been a longstanding concern about recruitment within um, Indian country, just period, looking towards Indian country or even seeing that Indian country has very bright, intelligent, passionate students to offer. Um, I think some of, the, some of the best partnerships that you can see are between um, institutions, four-year institutions and tribal colleges and universities, looking at folks who want to move up from some colleges and universities that are two-year programs into some of these four-year programs or transfer on to graduate school um, of a prestigious nature from those tribal colleges and universities. And that's one of the best places that you can absolutely recruit from Indian country um, alongside your various programs. Um, I know there are tribes and groups of tribes that host college fairs. Uh, in Oklahoma, there are some hosted by the Cherokee Nation that get your Harvards of the world and your Dartmouths of the world to come into Indian country. And so that's what we want to see more of. And we want to know that these institutions of higher education are learning and that they are looking at Indian country when their attorneys are looking at what the avenues are 
for them to continue pursuing diverse student bodies, right? Because mm -hmm. as mentioned, um, it's the political status of our students that really holds the basis for all of these agreements. Um, and that holds a lot of the responsibility to get our students into higher education. Education has been a piece and a pillar of agreement between the federal government and Indian tribes since the beginning. And that is the obligation now of universities to continue to uphold that obligation to our Native students. And Julia, going back to this issue of affirmative action, and obviously there are two sides of this issue. Some people don't support affirmative action, others do. What do you think of affirmative action with regard to how it has impacted Native students, specifically Native college students? Do you look to it as a success? Has it been a successful model for the last several decades? I would say that it's not just affirmative action by itself, and that's, and that's part of the issue that we're struggling with here. Um, people are referring to this as affirmative action, and in their brain, I think a lot of times we come back to this system of quotas, which has been illegal for some time now. Um, I would say that the successful nature of bringing students to college campuses is bigger than affirmative action. It's not just taking the applicants that apply and saying, this is a native student and so we have to admit them. That's not really the sort of situation that happens within an admissions office or that happens when it comes down to making the decisions about who's gonna be admitted to the class of 2025. Okay. Um, well, I'm curious. I mean, that's interesting you say that because I, I mean, let's just give an example. Let's say you have two students who look very similar on paper, similar test scores, similar GPA, similar high school courses, similar extracurricular activities, similar community efforts. I mean, just very, very similar, but yet one is native and one is white. Mm -hmm. How's that decision made? I'm just curious. I think it definitely varies, but one of the big pieces is about what we've already been discussing, which is the essays and the background and what does somebody overcome? Are they a musician? Do they play sports? Did their parents go to that college or university? Did their grandparent? Are they native? Are they white? So it's, it's not so much that it's a one-to-one -one test score. Test scores are not the only thing and then right. race is the next thing, right? Right, right? When we talk about affirmative action, People actually also, and I prefer to use the phrase, race-conscious admissions, because it's that race-conscious admissions that gets you thinking about, well, what other things are we conscious of when we're looking at the admissions process? Are we conscious of their talents in music? Are we conscious of their athletic status? Are we conscious of their family background? Are we conscious of their income level? And so by taking out one piece of the consciousness, one piece, that race piece, but you leave everything else behind, how can you truly look at whole students? It's never going to be same test scores, same extracurricular, same entire life experience, except one is native and one is white. That's never the situation. People and students are so much more complex than that, and that's what comes across in these decisions. Okay, thank you for that clarification, Julia. I wanna go back to Carmen now, because Carmen, we've been talking a lot today about legacy admissions, and I know that there are activists that are currently pushing for inquiries into this whole idea of legacy admissions. If your parents went to that school, if your grandparents went to that school, do you think this is the, the next approach that needs to be taken? Um, I think especially, so the legacy admissions, uh, as Matt said, really impacts 
selective institution. Um, so th that's part of what's problematic in the larger conversation about affirmative action, and this case in particular, the Harvard-UNC, is that we're talking about such selective institutions that, uh, you know, they, the so, so this is such a small amount of students that, that I feel we're <laughs> arguing over. But the content, so now this is the problem, is that now the consequences now affects everybody. And so I think it's a good thing that, uh, in my opinion, at the selective institutions that legacies are challenged and aren't admitted. And what we're talking about, when we talk about legacy, we're talking about families who give hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars in donations to those institutions. So that's what we're talking about here. That is like the, uh -huh. the other 1% of, of students. And so that's where it becomes so unrealistic when we're talking about, how, do we apply that to Native students? They're not giving as donors to these selective institutions in, such, in the same way. So this is where you have to bring in socioeconomic when we're talking about who are we talking about getting access to these institutions. It's, it's based, the race base is based on um, wealthy, privileged white people using the system continually the way they have since these colleges were founded to exclude others. We're still historically facing the same thing and battling that out today. Well, Carmen, thank you for, for finishing us off today here with this conversation. Uh, and again, it's an interesting concept with legacy admissions and what that really means. And I, I just want to add, you know, my dad went to Stanford, and I always hoped that that would help me get into Stanford as a legacy student. It didn't help, obviously. Um, my family also has a scholarship in his name at Stanford. So, yeah, not every Native family obviously uh, is able to donate to some of these schools, but some Native families are, and maybe as we move forward, we'll see more of that in the years to come. But at any rate, we have reached the end of our hour, and I want to thank all of our guests today, Matthew Fletcher, Carmen Lopez, Julia Wakeford, and James Kowal, for a really, really invigorating conversation on these recent Supreme Court rulings. Folks, join us here in NEC again tomorrow as we take a look at the progress by tribes to set a captive orca free. Hope you'll tune in then. Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right, when you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation 
and native nonprofit media organizations. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.